Welcome to our podcast today. For episode four, we're going to talk a little bit about prohibition. In fact, this is going to be the first of two podcasts on prohibition uh, because there's so much good stuff to talk about and different themes too. So prohibition, of course, was the effort in the United States to get rid of legal alcohol. And I always like to tell my students that the at this time, uh, alcohol consumption was by far our biggest social problem. Um, we had some drug problems. There was a small and growing number of heroin addicts at the time. Opium, especially among World War I veterans, was an issue. But alcohol by far outranked those as far as the damage it was doing to society. If you go back to 1900, for example, in the city of Boston, and keep in mind that the city of Boston had about 400,000 people, roughly 200,000 of them were men. And every single day, the average that the saloons in Boston would report for their customer traffic was 227,000. That is 227,000 people visited their saloons every day. And that was greater than the male population of Boston. If you took just the average American at this time, the average American was consuming about 2.5 gallons of hard alcohol per year. Now, if you break that down, yeah, that's uh, what, about 13 fifths or 13 bottles of hard alcohol per year. Um, but you also got to keep in mind, that's just the average among adults. And so you're also including the population of Americans that didn't drink. And so the total was actually much higher. So it's not out of the realm of possibilities to consider that an average American that did drink at that time was consuming something on the order of 20 drinks a week. So it was, it was really damaging. It, it damaged the family life. It, it soaked up uh, people's uh, salaries and pay. It, uh, it led to more domestic violence cases. It led to worker absenteeism, drops in productivity. Even during World War I, for example, when a large number of men got drafted and went overseas and large numbers of women were recruited to come in and work in those factories, production in those war factories actually went up when women were doing the work mainly because they were more productive because they weren't drunks they didn't they didn't call in sick the next day they came in and they did their jobs on a regular basis um it's one one aspect of of what was happening at that time that's often overlooked uh, of course there was a long effort to try to get rid of legal alcohol uh, groups like the women's christian temperance union that started in small towns mostly uh, started among churches as a religious movement to to combat what they call demon rum. They had been around the longest and they were extremely well organized and they were a grassroots movement trying to get rid of alcohol from the ground up, county by county. Uh, they were joined later, right around 1900, by a group called the Anti-Saloon League that thought we should also just ban the places where these where this alcohol is served. Uh, if, we, if we choke off the distribution points, then that will help our cause as well. And so these two groups were allies with one another. Well, the county effort, uh, that took place for a very long time where they just went to the county councils and the mayors and the cities themselves and used the churches and they tried to convince people that you should just outlaw alcohol in your county. If it's not here, then people would be much less likely to drink because people didn't travel very much in those days. And so county by county in many of the states, uh, you take a state like Texas, for example, where about three-fourths of the counties were already dry by the time the 18th Amendment passed. 
But sooner or later, they were going to need just a full-out federal ban. They were going to need the amendment at some point. Now, the 18th Amendment is unique for a bunch of reasons. One, it's the only, it's the only uh, amendment out of all 27 that regulates your moral behavior. Everything else is a freedom you have, a right that you have, or a protection you have from your government. And pretty much everything else is just designed around the system of governance, whereas this is about morality. And as we were about to discover this time, morality is what was a lot harder to legislate. But there's other cool parts about the 18th Amendment that most people don't know. It probably wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for a combination of factors that people don't today know about very much. Let's back up to start with the first factor here, and that's just straight revenue. Back in the 1790s, Alexander Hamilton, genius that he was, he set up a system whereby the government of the United States could make money to pay its bills. And he based it on three things, a sales tax, a tax on imports, and most lucratively, a tax on alcohol. Those three things were the pillars of revenue for us. And starting in the 1800s, when alcohol consumption was really bad, the United States government was making a lot of money on this. So they paid for most of the government's functions using a tax on alcohol. And so how are we supposed to prohibit alcohol without bankrupting the government? Passing the 18th Amendment necessitated that first we passed the 16th Amendment. And the 16th Amendment allows for the income tax. It says an income tax is constitutional. So here we are with the IRS. Now, at the time, they said, don't worry, don't worry. The income tax will never be more than 1% of your income. <laughs> anyway, the tying of government revenue to this new source that was consistent and that was reliable, uh, that's going to make it possible to disengage the United States government from alcohol. Without the 16th, the 18th is not possible. The second factor that most people have forgotten about or overlooked was World War I. Now, many if not most of the giant beer brewers at this time had really gotten established in the late 1800s. And they were Germans. They came over here as immigrants. They saw the opportunity. More immigrants were arriving. And they wanted to make more alcohol. They, they were good at it. It was like a tradition. And so you knew this already. You just didn't realize it. Start thinking about the names of these breweries today. Adolf Coors. Adolf. His first name is Adolf. Of course he's German. Anheuser-Busch. Sounds pretty German. Schmidt. Schlitz. Right? So there's these massive German brewers right about the time the United States is starting to turn towards involvement in World War I. And in order to get the population behind that war, they needed America to be anti-German. So the propaganda mills sprang up. The Committee for Public Information, led by George Creel, sponsored by President Wilson and Congress, started putting out propaganda that demonized the Germans. Stop calling them Germans. Call them Huns. And you started to see public sentiment shift. And so the Prohibition Movement grabbed that and said, not drinking beer that's made by Germans during World War I is a patriotic act and beer consumption dropped. So they used World War I as a tool for prohibition as well. The third big factor in prohibition actually coming to pass is a little bit darker. And that's that both people in Congress at the time, as well as a lot of businessmen, a lot of businessmen, recognized that prohibition was a business opportunity. 
that there's no way people are going to stop drinking. And so if alcohol is illegal, then there's going to be a new market for illegal alcohol. And we can supply that. We can make money. Prohibition is an opportunity for us to become rich. And that's going to get straight votes. Even when the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment went into effect, there were parties held, right, where people are supposedly taking their last drink. But many of these people were actually toasting, now is our time to get rich. Now, in the next podcast, we'll, t- we'll talk about the second stage of prohibition and what happens in the 1920s, and that's a culture all to itself. But in this one, I wanted to focus in on this kind of corruption. Now, to, f- to give you an idea about how Congress really wasn't on board with illegal alcohol, Congress had, in the 19-teens and 20s, a man named George Cassidy. George Cassidy was the personal bootlegger for Congress. Like He is going to get rich simply being the reliable supplier of booze to the U.S. House of Representatives and Senate during Prohibition. He has such tacit approval on their part that he was able to set up an office in the Russell Senate office building, a bootlegger actually running out of Congress. They liked him because he was both flamboyant and he could get his hands on anything, good alcohol, not distillery stuff, not bootleg stuff. But he could also uh, be discreet. Where, where they could get anything they want, they could flout the law and nobody would notice because he was good at this. Now, he's got an interesting career himself and, and it's going to go awry when he gets to about 1930. But the fact that Congress <laughs> backed prohibition, passes the 18th Amendment, and then immediately took advantage of the opportunity. You think about the combination of these three things, the changing of American revenue sources to the income tax away from alcohol. Secondly, World War I, and calling on people not to drink as an act of patriotism. And then third, just the business opportunity for bootleggers and illegal bars and everything else that made it popular with a few that were going to take advantage. And that sets the stage for what's going to happen next in the 1920s with people you know, like Al Capone, of course, but a host of others, uh, and where prohibition turns ugly pretty fast. And we'll talk about that in the next podcast. Thanks for listening.